Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Wednesday morning, the 5th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The year begins with COVID-19, meaning Omicron. The highly transmissible and dominant variant knows no boundaries. Vaccination does not offer immunity, causing record numbers of new coronavirus cases. The challenge this poses here is not dissimilar to the challenge all countries face. We're seeing COVID-19 cases among vaccinated vaccinated in workplaces across America, including here at the White House. But if you're vaccinated and boosted, you are highly protected. In the United States yesterday, the president told Americans that the real concern he has is for the unvaccinated. The number of people who have not been jabbed has dropped, Joe Biden said, from 90 million people to 35 million people in the last six months. There's still 35 million people not vaccinated and let me be absolutely clear we have in hand all the vaccines we need to get every american fully vaccinated including the booster shot so there's no excuse no excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. Now, if they sound frustrated in America, in France, they're losing patience altogether. Vacciné, vacciné, vacciné. En France, 50 millions. The French President Emmanuel Macron said yesterday that he will not be sending the unvaccinated to prison. I won't vaccinate by force, he said. But he warned them that from the 15th of January, you won't be able to go to the restaurant anymore. You won't be able to down one, won't be able to have a coffee, go to the theatre or the cinema. And he said the unvaccinated, well, I really want to piss them off. Unquote. The American president was somewhat more measured. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Bad as things might seem to be here, we are probably in a better situation than most places because the vast majority of us have been fully vaccinated and the Irish Independent is reporting on its front page today that the end is in sight for rules on close contacts who are boosted amid a review of the isolation periods. Philip Bryan is the political editor of the Irish Independent 
Independent and also the Sunday Independent. He joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Philip. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. The three leaders met yesterday. There's to be a full meeting of Cabinet today. What can the two million or so people who have had a booster expect in these changes that the government are considering? Well, the, the, the government are considering changes and would like changes, I think, and they would like changes to to go nearly as far as they have in America, where the, the Centre for Dis- Disease Control um, has recommended that people who are fully vaccinated, that's your booster shot and your previous shots, and you have no symptoms, but you're a close contact and you, you get alerted, that you don't do any isolation period, that you go about your life, you wear a mask uh, in public places, but but you don't have to isolate so here we know the rules for those that set of people are um, it's five days isolations doing three uh, antigen tests one every second day. So what the the party leaders came together yesterday afternoon and decided, look, that needs to change. This is having a huge impact on society. It's having a huge impact on frontline services and on um, businesses and, and people just trying to go about their business and get the, get get back working again. Mm. And. They have, but they, they're not going to make the decision themselves because they're just politicians, they're not public health experts. So what they've done is they've gone to Tony Holohan and they said, look, we need effort to look at this, we need to look at it quick, we need to get a decision on this, we need to have the international experience looked at, the international data, and see if that if, if we can follow suit in, in the CDC or something similar, even even if it's reduced by a few more days, if it's you know down to five, uh, five down to three or something like that. But the main thing is that people who are not sick aren't sitting at home hiding in a room when they, they could be out just uh, getting on with life. And they would have to wear masks. Uh, that would be a prerequisite. Would they have to take antigen tests? Ma, they, you see, we did, the rules haven't been uh, done up just yet. So right. NEFID are going to meet tomorrow. It's kind of a bit back to front this week because we have the Cabinet meeting today and the good news there is there's, there's no sign of any restrictions, new restrictions being brought to Cabinet. Um, there's, there's nothing like that seemingly being discussed, but NEFID are meeting tomorrow. Um, now, Tony Holohan and um, Michal Martin spoke yesterday, and the indication was from the Chief Medical Officer that there wasn't any need for restrictions this week, so we'll uh, cross our fingers there, and hopefully there, there is no need. And but, but they still have to meet, and at that meeting they will look at um, what can be done around close contact rules for the, the boosted, and, and come back to government then. You may see later in the week if a decision is made on on that by an effort, that they, they, it'll be given to government, and it, there may have to be a meeting on Friday. They may hold off until the following week. And uh, look, the, the, these things aren't set in stone at the moment. It's, it's kind of a little bit fluid on that end of things. Mm, and, and the politicians are, are right, aren't they, Philip? Uh, I mean, I think we all know at this stage uh, that uh, because so many people are out of work, it's posing real big challenges in both uh, public services and indeed in uh, the private sector. And anything that can be done to alleviate that uh, would be welcomed, I'm sure. So when are the politicians ever wrong, Michael? Well, that's very true. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but look, it is, it is. Everybody can see examples of it themselves, anecdotally. Um, um, and even over Christmas, I think, was the big one when a lot of people, uh, Christmases were possibly ruined or, or had to be split up or there was people sitting on their, their own in houses with no symptoms but they'd got a close contact message from the HSE so they shouldn't go this place or that place so they, and, then, and then and like you say look there's derogations in place for um, for the close contact rules for the health service workers but there, there's no derogations in place for, for bus train drivers for um, for, for guardy for teachers things like this so so the same rules that apply to you and me mm. apply to them and um, not, not saying our 
jobs aren't important, but their their jobs are are pretty important in getting getting uh, society up and working. Mm. And, then, and then you have the general stuff around retail uh, and other shops and businesses that that just if 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 you have your staff ringing in saying, "Look, I'm a close contact. I'm I'm out of the game now for seven seven days because I'm not because I'm not fully vaccinated. I haven't got my booster shot yet." It's hard to operate. And especially if that person is sitting at home with no symptoms and isn't sick in any way, uh, physical way. Mm. So I heard of I one employer actually. To address. I heard of one employer. Uh, uh, there's probably more, but I heard of one employer uh, who who was asking staff to take antigen tests in front of them uh, because they don't trust the staff saying that uh, they've tested positive and need time off work uh, because it's a very easy way of getting time off work. Well, I can see the potential for that there, especially after Christmas. Yeah. It's not easy to come back. <laughs> yeah, the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, said uh, this morning that she won't be seeking a derogation for teachers, uh, but there could be a problem when the schools open tomorrow. Uh, the children are to return to school. Uh, there's a question over a question mark over how many teachers might return to school. Yeah, look, that, that, that like I said, that, that that's another one of these sectors that there's no derogation there for teachers. There's a lot of teachers out there who will have who will have got COVID over Christmas. We're getting twenty thousand people a day are getting COVID. So it stands to reason that some of those are going to be teachers. Some of them are going to be close contacts. And then there's the other aspects of it as well that there's the fears amongst the teachers of maybe they have a vulnerable person living at home with them, and maybe they're living with with elderly parents, things like that. That they're that that they're worried that if they go into the school environments, that it'll be more. Uh, chance of um, catching COVID because the thing spread so quickly now, and you're you're in a room of however many thirty odd kids, and 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 especially the, the lower levels, sure, there's there's no mask wearing at all at the, some of the smaller kids. So look, that's 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 an issue for them. But the government has decided, and they made the decision yesterday, along with advice from public health officials. It has to be said, who who cleared the way, um, and I know, look, there's. There's some opposition from some teachers and from some parents, but at the same time, um, if we're not going to listen to the advice of public health officials at this point, I'm not sure who we can get to to clear the way or or to to stop schools to reopen at this point. The public health officials have their work cut out for them, don't they? Uh, Because uh, there's a combination of two problems, if you like. One is nobody knows how much COVID there is in the country. It's impossible to know because so many people can't get tests uh, and uh, so on. And the other thing is then that uh, however many cases there will be in a couple of weeks, Uh, depends on what's happening now. And if we don't know what's happening now, we don't know how bad it's going to be when it peaks in a couple of weeks. Yeah, well, that's the thing. If it does, in fact, peak in a couple of weeks, the the HSE's chief executive, uh, Paul Reid, said yesterday, he he said he doesn't even know when the peak is going to be. It's presumed it'll be in a couple of weeks. I think uh, the government and the the, the public health officials are looking to other countries, um, mostly South Africa and England and and Denmark especially, um, where it seemed to burn out quite quickly. It, It came in, it ravaged communities, ravaged countries, but then... Um, it died out. It, it kind of it, it, it had its fun and, and and left, and and didn't as it didn't in the same way as other variants um, cause as much damage in in the, the physical sense as in people weren't getting as sick. I think I think that's kind of accepted now. So it's more about the strain of uh, the amount of cases. So if it, you're still getting you, people mightn't be getting sick, but more people are getting sick. So that's still a, a problem for the health service, but. If the experience of other countries is maybe before at the end of the month, this month, we, we, we could be on the downward trajectory and hopefully getting back to normal. We'll mm-hmm. also at that point, another thing to say, Michael, is yeah. that um, 
the, these new antiviral drugs that have been developed by mm. the, the, the drug firms. Uh, Stephen Donnelly's bringing a, a memo to Cabinet today to, to try or, or to propose spending around 90 million of, of getting in a few early orders with uh, mm. like Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline and, and Merck to, to get these drugs, which, which will be another uh, tool in the toolkit to take on COVID. Oh, and a, a massive tool. I mean, imagine a world without antibiotics, uh, how many people would mm. uh, succumb to infections. But we have antibiotics and we don't even think about it. Uh, and I, I think uh, these antiviral drugs, uh, the hope at least is that they'll have the same kind of impact in, in tackling va- uh, COVID. Uh, you mentioned politicians never being wrong, Philip. Uh, there's uh, two politicians uh, who might be waking up this morning to read to the Irish Independent who might not feel uh, that that they're wrong, but they might be second-guessing themselves. Uh, and that would be Simon Coveney and Micheál Martin. Tell us a, a little bit about your article uh, this morning. Uh, you're quoting Omar Little from The Wire. Uh, tell us what uh, you're uh, quoting from Omar Little in relation to the Fianna Fáil leader. Well, yeah, this is the this is the quote from The Wire, Omar Little, who uh, the, the actor um, uh, Michael C. What's his full name? Michael D. Rather, uh, passed away just a few weeks back. Um, yeah, he famously said in it, "If you come at the king, you bet not miss." So, and then that was I was writing that in reference to to Michal Martin, who he was the Taoiseach and the leader of Fianna Fáil. And, but it, it's kind of almost um, taken as for granted that the man is going to be ousted from his position this year, or not even ousted, that he will step aside and become and allow um, another member of his parliamentary party take on the job as Fianna Fáil leader and ultimately tarnish of the country later this year. But the, the sense I get from those around him is that he has no intention of going anywhere. And, and if someone does um, want to succeed him, they'll have to do it by way of a, a bloody coup and they will have to, to launch a heave against him. To, to make sure to, to, to get him out of his office, yeah. and and we all know that the, the, the consequences for that, if you if you don't, can ask the the many TDs who have taken on political leaders over the years and then have spent the rest of their careers on the back benches. What happens if you call that one wrong or you back the wrong side? Mm, be careful, uh, and uh, we know as well that uh, if. Uh, Mihal Martin uh, continues as leader of Fianna Fáil. He'll become the Thánaiste and Leo Varadkar, all things going as planned, will become uh, the Taoiseach again in this uh, rotating uh, role that they've uh, agreed on. If that happens, uh, the expectation is that there'll be a reshuffle. What might that mean for Simon Coveney? Yeah, this is an interesting one because there's a, a lot of frustration with Simon Coveney in the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party. He's had a, a fairly rough year as far as uh, self-made controversies go, as far as shooting himself in the foot. And he seems to be doing it again over this champagne party that was held during lockdown in his own department, which he has been, which has been rumbling on for now seven days, I think. Before, and he still hasn't told us if he popped in to say hello or had a glass himself. And he, he hasn't spoken publicly on it either. It has to be noted, um, which is which is kind of a carbon copy of what happened with the the whole incident with Catherine Zappone too. So it, it, there's a lot of frustration with amongst TDs in the party over uh, his performance, over his handling of these issues, which 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 could simply be put to bed if if they had been dealt with quickly and transparently. And it, it's kind of taken for granted now as well that he he just doesn't have a chance of being senior leader if there if there was to be a. Uh, a succession uh, contest for Leo Radcliffe's position. So the the, the theory is, or the, the the 
I suppose the the thought is amongst backbenchers is why why is um, Leo Varadkar showing such loyalty to him when a reshuffle is coming up? He's going to ha- he has told his party he's going to be making some changes to his ministerial team. It's hard to see where a lot of the changes will come at at the cabinet table because there's the likes of uh, uh, Pascal Donoghue, Heather Humphreys, Simon Harris, Helen McEntee from your mm. own constituency. It's hard to see any of them being moved. Hildegard Noxon hasn't set the world on light, so sh- she could possibly be for the cut. And, and then you have Simon Coveney, who is the deputy leader of the party and does have all this uh, international experience. But, but what has he done for the party in uh, domestically is what the, the, the backbenchers would say and suggest that maybe it's time that he was moved aside somewhere else and someone else was given an opportunity to, to take up a, a more senior role. OK, well, it makes for interesting reading in the Indo this morning. Philip, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today, as always. Philip Ryan, political editor of the Irish Independent and the Sunday Independent. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, in that uh, letter that Philip Bryan of uh, the Irish Independent uh, mentioned a few moments ago from uh, Paul Reed uh, to uh, the service managers, he said that COVID-19 has placed healthcare systems under great pressure, both from cases being hospitalised and from staff shortages relating to infection or contact. And as of now, Mr. Reed said, we cannot say how many uh, higher cases will escalate and at what time we will reach uh, the peak. Trends from other healthcare systems in Europe demonstrate case numbers greatly in excess of those experienced in January 2021 as well as rising hospitalisations and staff shortages. And he went on to say that as a result, hospitals need to prioritise time-sensitive and urgent work through all means at their disposal in both acute and community care settings. Let's talk to Stephen McMahon, who's the spokesperson for the Irish Patients Association. Good morning, Stephen and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, There really is a a great challenge for hospitals to provide services uh, to people, many people waiting on very important procedures and operations for that matter. It is indeed. Uh, First of all, may I wish all your listeners a happy new year Um, and it is just hopeful that we would have a bit better um, uh, things to look forward to as we enter the year. Uh, This is a very serious situation Um, the CEO of the Health Service Executive, Mr. Reid, did send out a letter to indeed practically every one of his senior managers and uh, members of his, of, his, um, of his teams to both hospitals and in the community um, and the clinical directors of, of the various organisations. Um, the main concern here we have is that in, in a broad uh, situation is that once again, really, it's public patients that are suffering uh, because of the lack of reform over many governments uh, in our healthcare system. Yes, without a doubt, COVID and particularly the current uh, uh, variant is causing its um, impact now. Uh, I mean, I, anybody that anybody talks to, you must know at least three or four people that can tell you about their families or themselves uh, having had the um, the virus over the last uh, over the over the over the, the Christmas period. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, it's the cancellation of uh, long overdue operations for patients who've been waiting for, say, hip replacements, mm. uh, it'll be outpatient appointments will be uh, deferred or postponed. And um, this in turn then adds to the pain and suffering of these patients who don't have COVID-related uh, illnesses. Yeah. Uh, what might that mean uh, in the longer term for those patients? Well, first of all, I think it's important to point out that um, the kind of 
challenges that the HSE is currently facing um, is really no different insofar as that they have in the past had uh, many uh, staff out sick due to the flu, uh, bed closures due to infections in hospitals and uh, refurbishment and so on. Uh, It's perhaps maybe just the sheer scale of the uh, impact on it now almost probably doubles Mm. some of the um, experiences that they would have had in the past due to staff shortages and um, which not only is it just from them being sick but also not being able to fill posts which means that beds have to be closed and so on. So uh, the the rollout here is now that you know, that patients have been waiting so long. I mean, if we look at uh, Our Ladies of Drogheda, uh, there's uh, over nearly 11,000 people at the end of November were waiting to get their first consultant dead appointment and about a quarter of those have been waiting more than a year. And the same in Navin, uh, there was uh, 7,900, almost 8,000 people waiting to see a consultant. And unbelievably, almost a half of those have been waiting more than a year. Mm. So the key question here is, how are they going to be able to decide who is who is urgent and who is non-urgent? Because someone who's had a hip uh, that needs a hip replacement uh, may be elderly, and uh, it doesn't matter whether they're elderly or not, but they need a hip replacement. They may actually have a fall in their home or whatever because of the length of time they're waiting to get their new hip. Mm. And then suddenly they become a very urgent uh, emergency to go into the ED. And they'll and tell you that they need... They replicate that all over. Yeah, they'll tell you that they need a hip replacement urgently, uh, but they may not be considered uh, to be urgent uh, in uh, the current climate. Uh, but... Uh, what will that mean? I mean, a lot of the people that you mentioned on those waiting lists listening to us uh, this morning will be wondering, uh, will I be waiting even longer than I would have been otherwise? And I, I guess the answer to that is uh, that if you're considered not to be urgent, uh, most likely, yes, you will be waiting longer. Absolutely. And in turn, then, this creates an additional pressure, say, on family doctors who are already under a lot of pressure uh, due to COVID and the sort of current uh, working uh, situations that they find themselves in, and um, you know, people will be probably contacting their family doctor, wondering what's happening, or you know, maybe just to go and have a checkup because they're feeling even more poorly uh, than they were before. Uh, it looks like that the that this particular um, directive is talking about a, a period of 14 days uh, for them to prioritise the unscheduled. COVID care and the urgent time-sensitive work. Um, there's about seven different areas that Mr. Reid was referring to. And, um, you know, where they're saying that there's staff shortages in delivery areas related to um, uh, in acute care, that the staff must be redeployed to maximise the extent to support these areas. So this is where the problem arises, that you might have staff that are... Um, uh, that, that are needed in a particular ward to, to look after COVID patients. But because they themselves are unwell or whatever, they then have to draw up staff from other areas mm. of the hospital to fill those gaps. And that's where you have this sort of multiplying impact on, on public patients. And again, as I said at the start here, you know, it, it's public patients that are really bearing the weight of this contribution uh, to our public hospital system. You know, private patients are not really being impacted to the same degree, even though there, some of the private capacity is being used by the HSE to treat the, the urgent non-COVID uh, care. Okay. What about this proposal that... Uh, staff uh, who are close contacts but are not showing any symptoms don't have to isolate for any period of time. Uh, that might sol- solve the problem, would it? Uh, but would it be the right approach? 
Well, certainly, I mean, again, you know, we, are, we, we as an organisation, you know, respect the science and the clinical judgments behind these decisions. And um, the question, I suppose, is that you might find, you know, there might be a derogation at those time limits for uh, people with, the, with the, that protections. Um, other sectors of society might say, well, why not us too? Do you know what I mean? If, you know, if, 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 if somebody working in an area where they will be exposed to, to a higher risk of infection yeah. uh, can go back into the, uh, into the environment um, with a reduced time exposure to that, uh, well then, why, why aren't other individuals who have been so protected? I mean, you know, it does need to be uh, clarified. Mm. Um, and that works both ways. Well, in the opposite direction, you can make the argument uh, that uh, it's not safe for people to be in a healthcare setting if they've been close contacts. Well, I, I think, you know, it, it, is, it has always been, a, you know, a risky area for people working in healthcare due to the, due to the uh, chance of, of infections and so on. And that's why there are very high standards in infection control. I mean, Ireland has done a huge uh, step forward in its management of, if you remember, the, 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 the infection of MRSA mm. in reducing that infection in hospitals and the cross-infection and so on. So that only happens because the staff are adhering to the various uh, infection controls and advices and so on. And we obviously would hope that the, you know, that the, the lessons from that is, you know, that this is the way it is into the future, that, you know, that we can learn from what has happened with COVID and even make our healthcare system even safer. But I think the immediate issue here is that, uh, you know, just one point I'd like to make about Mr. Reid's letter is that he says at the end of his letter that he says, I'm aware that many of you will have taken the appropriate actions already, if you know what I mean. So the concern here is like, what assurances have we got that, you know, these protocols um, are being, um, you know, uh, evenly used throughout the entire healthcare system? Because it isn't just simply, you know, cancelling elective surgeries and, and, and outpatient appointments and so on. It's how the whole system, the process, the management of our healthcare system. We had overcrowding in our EDs long before COVID happened. We have a number of hospitals that have been at the top end of our league table for overcrowding for the last 12 or 14 weeks. And yet we see some hospitals, such as Beaumont and Dublin, have no patients waiting on trolleys. And they service almost a quarter of a million people for their population area. Mm. Yeah, that's some difference. Uh, but uh, I suppose there's also a lot of unknowns and uh, we'll uh, be uh, hoping that uh, the health service uh, doesn't uh, find itself overwhelmed and uh, manages to get through all of this uh, in Absolutely. the interest of everybody. Think, yeah. yeah, and I mean, mm. you know, mm. we would like to acknowledge all the great work that's been done out there in our hospitals mm. by all, all staff um, and indeed in the communities. We just hope now that this particular effort for the next two weeks uh, will actually make a dent in the in the in the in the spread of uh, COVID and the demand for healthcare system because we have almost you know, six or seven hundred thousand people mm. who don't have COVID non-COVID uh, need of our healthcare system and it's important that they can be reconnected in an urgent way and not to feel forgotten not to be forgotten because you know that they feel that you know that there's somebody else uh, more needy out there this is a, a very special situation that we're in at the moment but we hope that the mr reed would would send out a directive to all his uh, to all his team again to say to 
prioritise these people who have made these sacrifices over the past year in not being able to get the, the treatment that they need. Stephen, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Stephen McMahon is a spokesperson for the Irish Patients Association. Uh, thanks as well to Phil, who's in Drogheda, and Phil has been on the phone about uh, the school's reopening, saying he believes it's uh, hasty of uh, the government to go ahead. Would it not have made sense to teach online for the next two weeks until the peak of this wave is over. Phil says, I think what is going to happen now is that there will be lots of free classes in secondary schools because they're going to be short of teachers. They'll be out due to COVID and uh, because of their close contacts and teenagers will be sitting, freezing, doing little or nothing. For what? All they'll be doing is spreading the virus further. Primary schools were already struggling with subs before Christmas and before this particular surge. So imagine what it's going to be like now. You'll have schools that will have to send uh, children home because they won't have sufficient staff numbers. And Phil says, I'm all for keeping schools open, well, as much as possible anyway, but I think they should have waited another couple of weeks. Well, thanks for sharing those thoughts with us uh, this morning. Uh, all in touch saying, what's the point in getting vaccinated if it's not working? Mall says, it's crazy seeing all of these people queuing for something that's useless. Uh, this variant is uh, the weakest yet. That's absolutely nothing to do with the vaccines. Uh, that's the virus fizzling out. Uh, Mall says, I wish people would cop on. Uh, well, I think uh, what you're saying, Mall, is interesting uh, because there's no doubt that people who are vaccinated are, are catching coronavirus, at least this variant of it, the Omicron variant. Uh, But the evidence is that they're not getting severely sick. And the evidence from the hospitals all over the world who are still treating people uh, in hospital, who are still treating people in critical care, who are still losing patients because they're dying, uh, because they can't breathe. Terrible uh, terrible stories uh, from the ICUs of people passing uh, away uh, because they haven't been vaccinated. As you heard President Biden say, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So I suppose that's the reason for it, Maul, and uh, maybe worthwhile thinking about that for a little while. But thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to text us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, so something needs uh, to be done, uh, it seems uh, to be the case, uh, because of uh, the amount of people who have uh, COVID or who have been close contacts with somebody who has had COVID. And uh, derogations are already in place for some healthcare workers. Uh, let's talk about the potential changes with Dame, um, beg your pardon, with Damien Gindy, who's a SIP2 sector organiser for the Midlands North East Region Health Division. Good morning to you, Damien, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. SIP2 uh, would represent people working uh, across uh, the health sector, from porters to nurses uh, and so on. Uh, are people uh, to be treated differently uh, depending on what jobs they do? Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Um, that's right, yes, yeah, to represent members across um, all aspects of the health service, both in the acute settings and also in the community services. And um, unfortunately, look, as everyone is aware, this pandemic has been ongoing for almost two years, and our members are, are you know, expressing to ourselves their, their exhaustion, their, their mental health concerns in relation to the challenges that continue to face them. So... Um, the current uh, situation we're facing is, is, is quite concerning and worrying for our members and for, I think, the general public in, in, in so far as, unfortunately, there is a large number, as you've just alluded to, of, of colleagues 
uh, of hours in the health service unavailable for work at present due to either being positive COVID cases or being in close contact. And just maybe to give listeners some understanding of the scale of the challenge, if it's okay, Michael. Yes, um, of course. Yeah. Within the wider Ireland East Hospital Group, which incorporates the likes of St. Vincent's in Dublin and also the Matter Hospital, but also includes Our Ladies in Navan as well as Mullingar um, Hospital. There's almost 1,150 healthcare workers out um, as of today across those sites. Within Navan itself, Our Ladies in Navan, um, I understand this morning that there's almost 70 healthcare workers unavailable due to COVID. Um, and that situation is replicated across the state. For mm-hmm. example, in Our Lady of Lourdes, um, almost 15 to 20% of the nursing and healthcare assistants uh, are out and the information we're getting is unfortunately that figure is growing day on day, you know, and yeah. that seems to be the crisis. Across the and what's so, the feedback from your members? Are, are, are they happy for them to be out because of the situation or, or do they want the rules to change so that they can come back to work? No, the majority of our members are, are out, unfortunately, because they have, uh, in a lot of cases, a positive COVID case, so they should not be in the workplace. And, and for those then that are deemed close contact, um, they're following the co- current public health advice. Mm. But our members, um, we have, like from day one of this pandemic, in fairness to our, our members, they have um, shown great flexibility to provide health services in response to this pandemic. You know, we've had large-scale redeployment across the service since 2020, and we've had the curtailment of a large number of services, resulting in staff taking on new uh, roles to, to ensure health services are maintained. And, and that position hasn't changed. Uh, the, the, the position presented yesterday in relation to derogation of healthcare workers um, by the HSE, um, you know, is, is a document that was negotiated in December of, of last year um, and, and provides for, you know, the employer to follow a number of steps um, to, to see is it safe for a healthcare worker to return to work early. And, and our members have cooperated with, with that document where it has, where has been implemented and will continue to cooperate with that document, you know. So there's mm. no challenge or difficulty there. But I suppose the, the concern we would have, Michael, is that, you know, the derogation document clearly outlines the number of stages that the employer needs to follow. And, and the first is, you know, because we have to remember if somebody is deemed a close contact, you know, is it appropriate for that person to be providing care to somebody who's already vulnerable in our health setting? So that's that's the risk that, that is being questioned in this derogation process. So mm. the, the first step of the process for the employer is to ensure that they can source alternative healthcare workers from non-essential services who may be redeployed. Um, they also have to look at reducing capacity in non-essential services, again, to allow staff in those areas to be redeployed. Um, they have to be able to demonstrate what efforts the employer has made to try and increase recruitment um, of alternative healthcare um, um, workers because we know there's still, um, despite the pandemic, there's a large number of vacancies across the HSE at present, which is obviously bringing its own challenge for our members. Um, they have to be able to demonstrate that a risk assessment has been undertaken to ensure that it's actually safe for somebody who's agreeable to return early to do so. Um, and that also then allows for things like antigen testing on a, on a every second day basis, you know, um, at, at each stage of the return. So, But what if the guidelines change, as is being reported uh, this morning, that uh, if you are a close contact and you don't have symptoms, you won't need to isolate at all? Well, the concern for us is, you know, the, the guidelines um, from a public health point of view are, are based on health, 
you know, on a, on a health implication. So if somebody hmm. is, is a close contact with somebody with COVID, the public health guidelines to date have clearly suggested that that person should isolate so mm. they don't become asymptomatic and spread the... Of course. The, 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 uh, of course, but, but they've changed that in America and there is uh, this potential of us following uh, the CDC in the US. Yeah, but the majority of countries across the world uh, haven't changed it to date, you know. So mm. I know America have looked at it, but I don't think we would agree with everything that goes on in America if we're honest in relation to how they provide health care. You'd obviously um, have concerns about it, though. Of course we do, yeah. And and the challenge we have for, uh, I suppose, our healthcare workers is that the, the, the health system is in crisis um, at that moment, you know. And I think what the government needs to look at and, and be honest with the public is that, you know, the, the ability of the HSE to provide levels of service is, is challenged mm. at the moment. And, and, you know, decisions will need to be taken in relation to what non-essential services need to be looked at how um, scheduled appointments can be reviewed and maybe pushed out where possible Mm. to ensure that there is enough capacity to provide what is deemed as essential and emergency provision. And And our healthcare worker members won't be found wanting as part of that. And and there's protecting uh, the patients in the hospitals uh, as well. And I think a lot of people going into hospitals, uh, whether for uh, a short-term or long-term visit, uh, they're quite concerned because of COVID, because disease uh, can be quite transmissible uh, in a hospital setting. Uh, But uh, would it be a a case that uh, the porters you represent uh, may have to isolate and the nurses wouldn't? Would that make sense to you? Um, well, well, what it's, it's not about, I suppose, necessarily making sense. It's about following the, the protocol. And as I outlined earlier, and, mm. and look, we would share the concerns of the general public. But the protocol would have to make sense if people are, are to accept it, if people are to buy into no, it. No, it has exactly, to make logical yes. no, sense, doesn't it? From the point of view yeah. of, you yeah. know, that mm. the role is deemed as essential and, and required, you know. And, mm. and in fairness, look, you've, you've obviously mentioned porters, but we, we represent all grades. And like mm. our catering members, our porter mm. members, our household members, yes. you know, they're, they're, they provide roles that are equally as important as, as other frontline mm. roles. You know, uh, they're all cogs in the one wheel, you mm. know, and, and they all provide important elements of it. But but the derogation document clearly outlines that the manager has steps to follow and that the manager is then determining that X role is deemed essential uh, and, and having exhausted all the other options engages with the employee in relation to uh, a request for a derogation for that specific post and that specific role. And, and each one will obviously be based in on, on the outcome of the various risk assessments associated with that. Mm. But the challenge, I suppose, Michael, in relation to that, which we feel uh, is not being represented by the, the HSE, maybe in the information coming out on the government the last couple of days, is that that's not the solution to this. You know, unfortunately, of the 1,150 across Ireland East, um, hospital group that are out at present, a large number of those have COVID. So they are not available to return to work. You know, they yeah. are unfortunately out and, and isolating in line with public health guidelines. The others that are out have been deemed close contact. So their ability to all return to work at short notice is, is again compromised by potential, you know, exposure to the virus and then the knock-on implication, as you alluded to, you know, from the patient's concern uh, as to that. So um, the government, I think, needs to look at the bigger picture and see what services can be curtailed whilst we we try and deal with this challenge that is growing every day, unfortunately, uh, in our service. It sounds a little bit like damned if you do and damned if you don't. (laughs) Fortunately, it's very challenging at the moment. Yeah, But we do appreciate... Um, our members do appreciate the efforts of the public who are who are, you know, working with our colleagues on the ground who are who are who are, you know, looking at what needs to be done 
who needs to go to A&E, who can be dealt with locally, etc. And all those decisions taken by the public is helping our members on the ground deliver the, the services they can as best they can in, in the hospital. But it is very challenging. I'm sure it is, yeah. Thank you indeed for joining us okay. uh, this morning, Thanks Damien. Damien Ginley is a uh, SIPTU sector organiser for the Midlands North East Region Health Division. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, if you were listening to us uh, yesterday, Drogheda has uh, the unenvious title of being the dirtiest town in Ireland outside of Dublin. I mean, overall, it's not a good result for Loud Mead in that, uh, as you say, we, we survey 40 towns. Um, all the Loud Mead representatives, Dundalk, Drogheda and Navan, were all in the bottom half. None of them had reached clean status. So that is a disappointment. But you're right, a standout is Drogheda for all the wrong reasons. And um, the Antashka report states that it was the lack of top-ranking sites that brought it down. Um, like I'm here in, uh, in NACE because I'll be presenting to NACE as the cleanest town uh, later this morning. And when I look at the NACE report, it's all grade A's. Really? Every site was a grade A. When I look at the Drogheda report, I see just two grade A's. That was Riverview and the River Walk at Willow Grove. All the others are grade C or D and some grade Bs as well. So it's quite a contrast. So you can understand why there's that uh, difference in the rankings. That's Connor Horgan of the Irish Business Against Litter Group telling me about the results locally in the latest eyeball survey. Let's speak uh, to Niall Kearns, who's a member of uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Drogheda and chair of the local bids group. Good morning to you, Niall, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Do you think that was a fair result for Drogheda? Michael, good morning to you and to your listeners. Happy New Year to you, and thanks for having me on board. is it a fair result? Well, one has to be honest, yeah, I, I'd say it probably is fair, um, but I think we kind of have to delve down a little bit deeper to see, you know, why has things come out exactly like that. Um, obviously, COVID's been an issue for various towns, broadly included. Um, I think um, with restrictions on the ability of uh, Loud County Council teams to collect that litter with less litter patrols, uh, it's very obvious a lot more PPE lying around the streets and coffee cups is another issue. And the other thing too then is with uh, civic groups that might and, and individuals who might be inclined to pick up pieces of litter and dump them in uh, their own bin outside their house or in a, in a, a public bin on the street, that most people are reluctant to pick up any PPE, which I can fully understand. It is somewhat disappointing to see Drada come out the way it did, but at the same time, I wouldn't be entirely disheartened by it. If you look at the fact that whereas we fared poorly in the Eyeball Litter League, we fared surprisingly quite well in the Untashed Tidy Towns, which was held not so long later. The, the, the litter assessment is, is done as a point in time. One could say that if they arrived a week earlier or a week later, they might have a slightly or an entirely different kind of um, result, depending on the circumstances on the day. So um, I wouldn't just be inclined to get too tied down on just mm. one survey. Drawdown traditionally has fared very, very well in the Ibal League. In the last five years, we've really been up in the top ten for, I think, three, if not four of those five years. Um, even last year, which was also a, a COVID year, we were at number 21, and this year, unfortunately, 39. And so there is definitely a slide there. And the fact, as mentioned previously by a previous commentator, that uh, we don't have any A-grade sites on, uh, showing up in our survey. We tend to be more mid-ranking as such, and then uh, the lower-ranking ones fared particularly poorly. Like what they did point mm. out in particular that was of most interest to me 
was that sadly uh, they uh, made reference about Ballsgrove and Moneymore as being heavy littered in spots. Now this is not a yeah. Well, there seems to be a problem with uh, the bring banks in Drogheda. Uh, it's been a problem in the past, and it's a problem again. Uh, they do recognise uh, that there's been an improvement at uh, the bring bank at the Trinity Car Park, uh, but that is cancelled out by the problem at Ballsgrove, where they say there was considerable dumping. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think the bring, bring banks regularly come up uh, for mention in so much that, you know, invariably one or two of them fare poorly, not necessarily all of them every time. But go back to what we were saying about Falls Grove and Money More. Again, this is not a reflection of the entire estate. It's a section of those estates. Um, and, you know, there may be something to be said there in relation to you know, a certain degree of, of uh, you know, they seem to imply, you know, areas of disadvantage. And there might be something there to link into the Gearan report and maybe we could work with other civic groups to see what we can to improve things. But it's not just those areas. They refer to the basements in Lawrence Street. Mm. You know, that here, here is a prime site. It's a main street downtown. And the litter in some of these basements is not something that's happened in the last week or so. It's there of the opinion that this this litter has been there weeks, months, if, if even years. Yeah. And is, is there a lesson for the council in all of this? Have you a message for the council in all of this? Well, I think the message for the council is that the various civic groups are very happy to work with them. We, like, I'm wearing three hats here. I'm working mm. as a retailer downtown. I'm talking as chairman of Lotra Auto Bid and also as a council member of mm. the Chamber of Commerce. So <laughs> I'm kind of a few things, a few states spinning at the same time. Sure, but there wouldn't be a problem at the bring banks, let's say, if the bring banks were emptied regularly enough so that people didn't leave the stuff outside of the bring banks. Uh, and the same can be said uh, about the furniture or whatever the big areas, uh, the big uh, problems with household items are in money more. Uh, if uh, that uh, was removed or people were fined for it or there was some sort of uh, deterrent. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that's fair or unfair. Uh, what do you think in terms of the council's uh, policing of rubbish in the town? Yeah, well, what I'd say in, in relation to that is I suppose the first thing we, we all have to agree on is, of course, we may be critical of our council because we see this as something of a failing, but let's face it, it's not the council producing the letter, unfortunately it's us. Mm. And the council are the ones picking up our mess. So they do deserve credit for where they get things right. I would say that in relation to the bring banks, as you mentioned earlier, I do think as a matter of course, it should be a case that each time the bring bank is emptied, there should be a clean-up at that moment in time. That it's not a case that we do it three or four days later. That, that is the time to do it. When the when the bottles and the cans have been removed, mm. uh, uh, you know, you could have a crew there. These, these that you're not afraid to park your car near it for fear of getting a puncture. <laughs> Sorry? I say you're not afraid to park your car near it for fear of getting a puncture. I regularly use the bottle bank. I'm glad to say I never got a puncture. Mm. So I, but there's yeah, always a lot of glass about it. I'm not too worried about a bit of broken glass. I don't think it would go okay. so no, easy. Right. So I wouldn't be so worried there. Um, but yeah, I do think like the, the, the other thing too is, I mean, the council should have a, a litter hotline whereby people could report that there's litter building up here, be it that somebody's dumped a settee or a, a kitchen unit or something else. That's something that should be dealt with within, a, you know, 48 hours, really. That's not something that should be left sit for a period because when it does, it attracts more and people say, this is a site where you can get away with this. We've something to dump as well. We're going to throw it there as well. Okay. Uh, and really, that is the, probably the most critical thing they could do is really have a, you know, a, a patrol that can do flash calls, you might say, mm. to 
clear that rubbish as quick as it happens and don't let it build up. It's the old broken window syndrome. You leave a building with a broken window, by the end of the year, they'll all be gone. Okay, as you say, Niall, it's up to all of us, though. We all have a responsibility in this and perhaps uh, people uh, can believe uh, in uh, Greytown and have some local pride and not litter it uh, in the way that's been reported there. But thank you indeed for joining us. Okay, thank, you. thank you, Niall Kearns uh, of uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Drogheda and the chair of the local Bits Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you've been hearing already uh, this morning uh, the concerns uh, that uh, the ASTI Trade Union has about uh, the schools reopening uh, tomorrow and how as many as 50% of teachers could be out of work for reasons related to COVID, either that they have COVID or that they are close contacts. Let's speak to Eamon Dennehy, who's the president of the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland. Good morning to you, Eamon, and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. The Minister, Norma Foley, said she wouldn't be seeking a special derogation for teachers. So how is all of this going to work? Well, well, we'll welcome that, uh, that there isn't a special derogation, I have to say, because I'd imagine uh, with regard to health and safety, it, it might be the best of ideas, really, because we have to be very careful, I think, with this uh, coronavirus and, and uh, the, the possible uh, impact it might have on our health. Um, just our concerns are really that, uh, yeah, you will have uh, uh, absenteeism uh, uh, from work uh, due to illness uh, as a result of this. That's happening in other sectors of society already. Transport, etc., is being affected by this. And the school system is no different to that, I'm sure. Uh, there'll be lots of people uh, missing from work, and there will have to be contingency plans and what have you put in place for that. And there should have been uh, planning put around this. Uh, as well as that, I suppose the big issue we have, the, the bottom line really is safety, health mm. and safety in our schools. And uh, our schools have been neglected for years at this stage, uh, for, for generations at this stage, really. Uh, our school buildings, an awful lot of them are very, very so standard. And, and, and the coronavirus has really uh, shone a, a light on that fact. So we have very poor uh, ventilation very narrow corridors, very small, crowded classrooms. So it's a, it's an absolute nightmare with regard to this coronavirus, especially the newest version, which is much more transmissible. Mm. And so, what about filtrating the air? Uh, will uh, children be returning to classrooms with HEPA filters? They won't. Uh, they, they will in some cases, but uh, not in all. And, uh, and, and, and that's very regret- regrettable because we've been asking for these measures for... for uh, for over a year now at this stage. Mm. And they were agreed and, uh, before Christmas, weren't they? They were. Um, and and as well as that, uh, in fairness, there was uh, help provided as well uh, and advice, which we looked for uh, in, in choosing the correct uh, filtration system and what have you. But, you know, schools are not uh, school uh, principals and school uh, teachers, and they're not experts on these matters. So there should have been much, much more uh, support given and much more thought uh, put into making sure that the air in classrooms is is filtered and is clean and is healthy, or else it's, uh, if it's very well mm. ventilated, that probably achieve the same. And there's huge, um, there's a huge range of them, and uh, they vary greatly in price. Yeah, mm. they do, and and we are not in a position really as teachers, you know, to to make these decisions. We need there, there should be some research done at uh, at government level on that and uh, choosing the best possible uh, 
you know, uh, filters for various uh, situations. And, and I, uh, I gather people are, are realising their close contacts or they're getting a, a positive antigen or a positive PCR, uh, as is the case with all of us, uh, regardless of what we work at uh, on a, a daily basis. And uh, if you follow that line of, of logic, uh, it has to be that teachers will be expected to be in school tomorrow and they may end up calling in sick or that they can't come in. Oh, the, the, there's... Uh there's no doubt that to some extent, we don't know the extent yet, but the, ex- the extent of absenteeism tomorrow could, could be very high. And that could be could very be, problematic, especially for working that is. But for yeah. working parents, that could be very problematic, I take it. Of course it can. I mean, we appreciate how important schools are with regard to society in general. That, you know, the, the, again, the virus has, has, has uh, pointed that up to us. You know, schools are, are safe places where young people go and spend a good deal of their day. And, mm. uh, and uh, if they close, of course, that fantastic facility is taken away. And it impacts on working people. We, we accept all of that. Of course, of course it does even apart from the importance of education. But at the same time, important and all that it is to keep them open, they can't stay open if they're not safe. So every possible measure has to be taken to ensure the safety of the, the, the teachers and particularly the students as well uh, mm. in our schools. And, and we have, we, we've asked for measures with regard to that. For example, we have been asking for a while now for um, a, a medical grade uh, uh, masks, etc., mm. for for students and teachers in schools. And will they and be? Hasn't been forthcoming. They won't be available tomorrow, will they not? I I doubt it. But mm. we we would hope that they'd be available as soon as possible. No, they may well be in some schools where we, uh, you know, the the where decisions have been made to provide these uh, mm. facilities and, and realise how essential they are. OK, because this thing is so transmissible, uh, it's different than the situation before Christmas, uh, for that matter. But uh, as I said earlier on, the Minister has said she's not seeking a, a special derogation for teachers, uh, but uh, that might mean that teachers will be expected to come into school uh, if they're close contacts. That might be the case for everybody. Uh, if you're not showing symptoms, this is uh, the report in the Irish Independent today that yeah. the government is going to look for uh, approval that uh, if you have been a close contact but you don't have symptoms that you can go to work. Uh, how would your members feel about that? I'm sure they'd be very uh, anxious about that. And you see, uh, teaching, like a lot of other, it's not, it's not unique in this, but teaching is about uh, close contact. It is about lots of people in a room uh, together. So the, the chances of, uh, of transmitting it to somebody else or getting it yourself in our profession is very high. Uh, you contrast that. I was just passing a shop there uh, lately. There's a shop locally here, and they'll only allow maximum of three people in the in the shop at a time, which is absolutely sensible and it makes everybody comfortable. They can queue outside and come in, especially since the new variant came around. But that's that's sensible, but we can't do that in schools. So yeah, every, every possible measure has to be taken uh, to prevent the spread of this. And I think uh, ignoring uh, cross contacts and stuff might be a step too far too. We'd, uh, we'd, we'd watch that with, with concern, especially with regard to our profession. Having said that, though, you expect uh, the schools uh, to open tomorrow and to work as best as they can, uh, that there'll be full cooperation from the unions, in other words. Well, there will be. That we'll do the best we can tomorrow. But that, the, the point about that is that uh, 
we did raise concerns and raise them and have been raising them for a long time. And no matter how much cooperation the uh, teachers give and students give and we all give, if the situation isn't safe, the virus will spread and the school will close in spite of all of us. Mm. Because it just won't function because we'll all be either, like you say, close contacts Mm. or we'll actually have the virus. Okay. Uh, You're worried that we might be shooting ourselves in the foot by acting with haste. Absolutely. If we Mm. neglect the safety procedures, I think we'll be so sorry. I think it will be that old story, you know, the the hapney what the tar uh, will spoil the ship, perhaps. Okay. Not Eamon, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Hopefully all will go well, uh, but there is uh, much uh, to contemplate uh, and indeed much to be concerned about. That's Eamon Dennehy, who's uh, the president of ASTI, the Association of uh, Secondary Teachers in Ireland. Now, thanks to Margaret, who was on the phone to us. Uh, Margaret is in East Mead, and she says she's no complaint about the government's vaccine rollout and thinks they've uh, done a good job with uh, the booster jab, despite the slow start. But she's concerned now about rules possibly changing in relation to isolation. Surely there was a reason for having to isolate for 10 days if you had COVID, and she worries uh, that people will be out and about too soon and infect others if they reduce it to five. Thanks, Margaret. Uh, It's uh, in line with uh, the CDC recommendation in uh, the United States. uh, And I think it's because uh, it seems as though Omicron is less uh, contagious uh, and uh, there's less risk of serious disease for people who have been fully vaccinated. And uh, this uh, new change, if you like, uh, this uh, new uh, way of saying that if you don't have symptoms would apply only to people who have been fully vaccinated, who've had a booster. Uh, and therein lies the difference. I, I think uh, if you haven't been vaccinated, you'd need to to isolate as is the case because there's a a much stronger chance of severe illness shredding more virus and passing it on to more people quickly Uh, the logic uh, I'm not saying that the logic is correct but the logic seems to be uh, that if you're fully vaccinated and you're showing no symptoms uh, that there's probably uh, less chance of you having the, uh, the, the the virus or shedding much of it and passing it on to others. And I, I think uh, that they're weighing up uh, how the country will come to a standstill if we follow the existing guidelines that you have to isolate, weighing that up and balancing that uh, against the idea of taking this risk. Is it a step too far? Is it a risk uh, too much? I don't know. Uh, They haven't decided this yet, of course. Uh, The Cabinet meeting at at the moment, uh, NEFIT will be meeting uh, tomorrow. NEFIT will be making its recommendations uh, then and uh, perhaps uh, there'll be some clarity uh, on Friday or over the weekend. Geraldine is in Drogheda. Thanks for your call to the programme, Geraldine. She says that it shouldn't be any surprise to anyone how badly Drogheda fared in uh, the latest IBAL litter survey. Certainly not to the County Council, Geraldine says. She says she's rung the County Council numerous times to flag different issues 
uh, about rubbish and litter and dumping. Uh, she lives on the Dunor Road and at one stage she says she could hardly walk up the steps to Ballsgrove because it was covered like a carpet with grass. And she feels uh, that the town is being neglected and believes that uh, the downgrading of the local borough council is to blame. I don't think the borough council was downgraded. Uh, it was abolished. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit beyond downgrading. Uh, it's, uh, it doesn't exist anymore, in other words. Uh, but thanks uh, for your call, Geraldine. And uh, I jest, of course, and probably shouldn't. Uh, Patricia Andrade in touch with us too. Patricia says, my daughter is in secondary school and I won't be sending her to school tomorrow. Whoa, okay. That's a big decision. I'm not sure if uh, there's many people making that decision. It'll only become clearer, I suppose, when the schools open tomorrow and we hear about uh, attendance and teacher absenteeism and uh, children not going into school, whether it's because uh, they have COVID or they're a close contact or like Patricia, their parents have decided not to send them to school. Patricia is not sending her daughter to secondary school tomorrow. She says she will monitor the situation over the coming days and she may send her in on Monday. Uh, she says she doesn't agree with the reopening of uh, the schools this week with the current rate of infection. Thanks, Patricia, indeed, for your call to the programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you're a shopper, you probably love the January sales, but are the sales genuine and are they fair to you as a customer? Do you realise what these products once cost and what they're costing today and if you really are making a great saving? A great saving uh, that it seems to be at face value, especially if you look at an item which costs just over €2,000 with the recommended retail price of of €3,149. This is an issue that has been brought to our attention. Uh, The problem is that the item which has a recommended retail price of €3,149 doesn't cost €2,079 in the January sales. It's actually €300 more expensive. That's €300 more expensive than it was at the end of October. A month later, it's €2,349. How is that? Well, apparently the item was on sale in October and came off sale on the 31st of October and then went up in price and remains at... Uh, on sale at uh, that higher price price today in a shop that uh, has a January sale. At the moment, uh, we contacted the CCPC about this and they say that there are regulations about the claims businesses can make about their prices, which means they have legal obligations regarding the actual prices, previous prices and recommended prices of products. These prices must be stated truthfully. And specifically in relation to price reductions, consumer protection law currently states that if a business advertises stock at a reduced price, they must have had the products on offer at the advertised original price for a reasonable period before the price was reduced. The definition of a reasonable time is not currently specified by law, nor is it specified when the previous price must have been live. This has implications for consumers and the CCPC as the relevant enforcement body. Let's uh, talk to Dr Cyril Sullivan, who's uh, the Director of the European Consumer Centre in Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Cyril, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I'm sure you can understand the concern that our, our listener had and how they felt 
somewhat cheated or misled uh, because uh, they thought they were looking at a, a sale price which was €300 Euro more expensive than the price they had seen this product at uh, a month previously. Michael, yeah, the, um, the operation of uh, sales and, and uh, reductions is designed really to get people to, to buy, obviously, and, and to react. So there are a whole series of practices that are adopted. And I suppose from a consumer point of view, that's the business we're in. We, we would give consumers, uh, um, we, we call them the three R's, we give consumers a piece of advice. And you can see that the individual contacted you, to be fair, was following the three R's and that the three R's are you do your research, uh, you identify what your rights are, and then you look for your redress if you feel there's something wrong. Um, so in terms of the research, it's very important to do the research on price uh, because uh, a lot of people... Uh, in the sales may be found uh, with impulse buys where they just decide, look, as you you may find that some, something's advertised for 3000 uh, they arrive in and they see 2000 they go, that's really good value, and they buy. And then they find that it, it probably hadn't been on sale at 3000 or it wasn't a reasonable length of time as you described. So uh, there's a lot of um, issues for consumers. And as I said, we would uh, recommend the three hours research rights and redress and I can expand on those if you want yeah please uh, but uh, I take it in terms of the research you'd want to be looking at prices 12 months of the year yeah and, and, and unfortunately you know if you want to get a good quality product at a good price you have to uh, do your work because um, you know there's a, there's a lot of issues in the background going on for businesses here and uh, you know some of them in the main are uh, I suppose most of them in the main to be fair would be looking to give a genuine bargain and make sure that they retain uh, their custom However, there are issues for, uh, for businesses in terms of stocks, trying to reduce stocks. Uh, you know, they'll have stocks of goods that are either going out of date, going out of fashion, uh, you know, um, being upgraded in terms of technology or whatever. And what they're looking for really is to, to move them. So if they advertise a better price, reduced price, and you haven't done your work, you think, oh my God, you know, I'm getting that phone at a really good price. You may have got it even cheaper uh, somewhere else. So, so we're just we're, we're advising people to do a bit of research. Impulse piece is, is, is key in the sales. Mm. Uh, and uh, there seems uh, to be a message between the lines I'm not sure if I'm reading it uh, correctly uh, but uh, the statement from the regulator says that uh, there needs to be a reasonable time between the price differences but that that is not defined do we need a definition of what is a reasonable time? The difficulty I I think uh, Michael with these things is that they're generally consumer items so they're small items and uh, in order to sort of prove or you know to to get a definition to attempt a definition you probably have to somebody would have to take a case go through the courts and it probably cost a lot of money so um, you know unless the legislature decides what a a reasonable price is that is the law that is and until somebody tests it we can't really say however you would expect somebody who has something on sale you know would have and puts recommended retail price in, in, in bold above the sale price that they have made every effort to comply with the law. So therefore, you know, a reasonable price, a reasonable price, a reasonable time frame would be months, I would imagine. I, I can't see somebody just sticking it up in a week and a week later changing the price. I don't think mm. anyone can see that as being fair. Does that happen? I suppose the difficulty is, as I said, unless it's a case taken, mm. we have no record of it. However, you know, I, I have no doubt, and as I said, good retailers uh, and uh, will have good practices, but I have no doubt it, 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 it can happen because... Uh, 
you know, unless you are doing your homework, as I said, unless you're doing your research, it's very hard to identify it. And in the European Consumer Centre, you'd deal with a, a lot of complaints and concerns that people would have about online shopping. And I, I take it it's harder uh, for people to research what prices were previously advertised at. Uh, but uh, when you talk about January sales, uh, there must be a temptation for some uh, who have no problem with sharp practice uh, to say uh, that on uh, the 20th of December it cost €50 Euro, uh, and then they bring uh, the price uh, down uh, to €40. Euro, uh, uh, it goes from 40 to 50, I beg your pardon, the other way around, from 40 to euro uh, on the 24th of December uh, and then come around uh, to January and put it back up to 50 euro, the original price. And uh, Yeah, and it's just that, it, um, you know, as I said, it's a seasonal thing and there's a whole pile of reasons behind pricing decisions. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, obviously, you know, retailers want to be competitive. Um, they're going to have stock. Um, you might find, you know, things put under a sale price, you know, or even under a price while stocks last, and you don't really know what level of stock is behind that at all, you know. Mm. So, so there's there's a lot of things that uh, consumers have to be aware of. But I, but we have noticed, Michael, is that with COVID, people have moved online in terms of the purchases. So the second order that I mentioned in terms of rights, if you buy anything in a, in a shop and an in-store physical purchase. You've no real rights if you want to go back and change it. So you're not happy with the colour or the size or something. You have to really depend on the terms and conditions of the purchase. So if you're buying it, we're, we're advising these consumers to pay attention to the, the receipt. It'll say, look, you've 28 days to return this. Mm. The good news for online purchases is that they have a 14-day cooling off period. And the reason being is that if you buy online, uh, you, the item arrives in, you haven't actually physically seen it. So you may not actually be happy with it at all and you get it. So therefore, you're given that choice, which you don't have for a physical purchase. So there's, um, there are benefits in terms of online sales. And one thing that we probably would suggest if people are buying locally uh, in, in Drogheda is um, click and collect, you know, because you have the protection of your online purchase, but you save yourself delivery costs and you also get to see the product. You know, So there's, there's a mm. number of things that people can do to, to work around it. But again, and, uh, you know, it, it can go wrong and, and, and it may go wrong. And the third R, as I said, is redress. And what we're saying there is, you know, the consumer law in the, within the EU and purchase within the EU is strong. Uh, and you have, say, the goods and the consumer rights directors, et cetera, which are all implemented here in Ireland. OK, but if you feel you've been cheated or uh, that uh, your rights haven't been uh, upheld, uh, do you need to go to court? You were talking about uh, taking well, cases Well, uh, I think the CCPC and ourselves are here to help in that. Uh, we uh, take up those cases on behalf of consumers. But you also have uh, payment platforms. You know, so if you buy something with a credit card mm. and you find clearly the, the item, like under law, if there's something wrong with the product, you, you're entitled to full redress, you know. Uh, and if the trader isn't giving you full redress, uh, rather than make a complaint to the CCP or SAS, the first protocol we'd recommend is uh, make your claim against the credit card company because credit card companies have an insurance uh, facility, you know, called a chargeback. And it, it means that if you bought it by credit card, and there's something wrong. Um, and the, the, the trader's not cooperating with you, you just make a claim to the bank. So there's mm. a number of redress options open to consumers. And, and, and that option I mean, isn't open to you, though, if you bought it with a debit card, is it? No, it is. I mean, oh, again, okay. check it. Check mm-hmm. it. It's a case right. that I, uh, we find that 90% of debit cards offer the same facility and you have 120 days within which to make your claim. You know, if you bought it on the 1st of January, you know, you're still covered up to the end of 
March, you know, uh, April time. So it's just that, um, you know, those sort of options are there and they can be quick. They, they're very cost effective. It doesn't cost you anything to make the claim. And uh, then if they fail, you know, we're there in the background as well to, to approach the traders on behalf of consumers. Now, the CCPC uh, operates on the basis of Irish uh, consumers for Irish uh, traders, and we deal on the basis of Irish consumers for uh, across border across the EU. You're meant to have more or less the same experience buying in Ireland and, and Germany, you mentioned the same experience, and we're there to help consumers have that experience. So it's just that, um, you know, there is redress options there. And as I said, the three ORs, you know, if you do your research and you know it's a genuine bargain, you know your rights in terms of making sure, you know, the, from a legal point of view, it's limited for in-store in terms of conditions and then redress in terms of the um, payment platforms, etc. So it is, it's a, it's a it's, you know, caveat emptor, you know, yeah, it's, uh, and, it is not a, it's not an easy thing for people to do, to go out and buy, but we are saying, you know, it, it generally works well, it's generally safe, uh, but, but pay attention. Okay, uh, and I suppose uh, the uh, important part of uh, the redress or the research part uh, is uh, that uh, it's not necessarily a great bargain because it says on the tag that it's been reduced from one price to another. Absolutely, and just to be aware of that, that is that is key because uh, the, the business can put the price whatever way they want as long as they've made that reasonable period of time and they can stand over that. They really, it's, it's a business decision what price you put in the product and you may feel really aggrieved and I, I heard that case as you mentioned at the beginning where you feel really aggrieved where somebody's bought something, the price is reduced, it goes slightly back up and you're waiting for it to go back down on the sale and they don't put it back down and they have a good business reason but it's not against the law. Okay. We leave it there, Cyril. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Dr. Cyril Sullivan, Director of the European Consumer Centre in Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you're a smoker, it's quite possible that you're smoking more than you were before the pandemic. Uh, research for the HSE shows uh, that 28% of smokers are actually smoking more than they did before restrictions were put in place. The HSE is asking you, though, to think about quitting. And uh, Dr. Peter Kavla, public health medicine specialist with the HSE, is on the line. And a very good morning to Dr. Kavla, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Are you surprised that those who smoke are smoking more? I suppose it must be down to boredom or uh, lack of routine and that sort of thing. Yes, Michael. Um, definitely it's interesting to see the effects that COVID has had on smoking behaviour across the population. Um, it's had a mixed impact uh, for some people who would have smoked. Some people have stopped because of COVID. Some people have smoked, started to smoke less. But as you've said out there, uh, there are people who have smoked more um, over the um, events that, that have happened since 2020 related to COVID. And I suppose in a way that's surprising because um, you would expect that the events related to COVID would motivate people to quit because there's very good evidence to say that people who smoke are at increased risk of severe disease progression if they develop COVID. That's because many people who smoke um, have chronic disease as a result of smoking. They maybe have lung disease or they have um, heart disease and that puts them at increased risk of severe harm if they were to develop COVID. So it is surprising that um, some people have increased their smoking as a result of the events related to COVID uh, but the important message uh, for people is that the HSE is here to help um, and it can help people to quit uh, through our services. Because it's very difficult, isn't it? Uh, and uh, I think most people who smoke want to quit. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's that, that, that's what uh, statistics would tell us. You know, each year we have run something called the Healthy Ireland Survey, where we check in with a representative sample of the population to understand their health and well-being and what their interests and needs are in terms of their health. And uh, when we uh, gather that data and look at data from people who smoke, what we find is that over three in four people who smoke are interested in making a quit attempt. And um, over one in two people who smoke uh, will tell us that they made at least one quit attempt in the last year. So actually there's huge momentum behind quitting across the population. Mm. You know, we've seen large numbers of people make quit attempts. But one of the unfortunate things is, Michael, too many people who smoke who make a quit attempt, they, they make that quit attempt on their own. Um, they try and go cold turkey um, when actually if they were to reach out for support to the HSE, they can increase their chances of making a successful quit attempt. Right, you'd advise against cold turkey. The most successful way for somebody to make a quit attempt is to reach out for support. So the HSE can provide support where available on quit.ie or 1800 201 203. And if somebody was thinking about making a quit attempt, there's really three steps that I would recommend they take to increase their likelihood of making a successful quit attempt. The first step I would say to people is, get clear in your mind as to what your motivation is around quitting. For many people, that motivation will be a concern around their health. It might be concerns from members of their family or it could actually be a concern just in terms of the sheer cost associated mm. with smoking. So if you're smoking 20 a day, that's going to cost you about five grand, uh, five grand a year. So be clear in your motivation because quitting can be difficult and, and being clear in your motivation will get you through those difficult times. The next step that I would recommend, the second step is that people would set a quit date and develop a plan. Um, that's very important because um, when people make a quit attempt, they can uh, be triggered into a relapse or they can suffer from cravings. And having a plan in place can Mm. help to disrupt some of those habits and increase their chances of being successful. But the single most important step, uh, the single most helpful step that people can make in terms of increasing their chance of making a successful quit attempt is if they reach out to the HSE for support. So the HSE can provide support that's free, free, um, it's easy to access, Um, It's tailored um, to individuals' circumstances and their own individual needs. And it's delivered by experts. We have over 50 stop smoking advisors across the country who've worked with literally thousands of people to help them make a successful quit attempt. And what we would find is, uh, compared with going cold turkey, when people reach out and use our services, um, if they use um, coaching alone, they double their chances of being successful at a quit attempt. And then if they join um, uh, coaching with a stop smoking medicine, so something like um, uh, nicotine replacement therapy, they can increase their chances of becoming smoke-free by three to four-fold. So really the, the most important step that somebody can take in terms of increasing their likelihood of having a successful quit attempt is to reach out to the HSE for support. Okay, and there's the free phone quit line, one eight hundred two zero one two zero three, 201 and uh, you can quit through the HSE Facebook page. That's the HSE Quit Facebook page, is it? Absolutely. There's, mm, there's loads mm, of different channels yeah, available, mm. so people can log on to quit.ie. They can ring one eight hundred two zero one two zero three, and um, there's also a free text as well. And all of those services are available to people free of charge. They're very easy to access. And but sitting behind that is all of the expertise and all of the science that we have in terms of what works to help people quit. And also sitting behind that as well is a lot of work that we do speaking with people who smoke, um, Mm. understanding what their concerns and interests are, and also speaking with people who uh, have made successful quit attempts. And on our uh, quit.ie website and on our quit Facebook page, you'll find lots of really practical and useful tips for people who have been successful in quitting themselves. And I think they're really helpful in terms of um, enabling people to be successful. Why is it so difficult? Uh, It's very simple, isn't it, Michael? Uh, Nicotine is highly addictive. 
you know, if you were to try and in a laboratory cook up a substance that was highly um, addictive, you wouldn't do much better than, than nicotine, you know. And mm. I, I think when we talk about smoking, um, it's interesting, you know, um, when, when you listen to some of the debate around smoking, people will talk about this as being, oh, it's something that somebody wants to do or it's an individual choice. Or you'll even hear these sort of arguments like it's an individual right to smoke. Mm. The reality is most people who smoke have been manipulated into that habit as children by the tobacco industry. And once they have been manipulated into that, they find themselves in a lifelong addiction. That is, it's, 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 it's a very strong addiction. And, and this is why when it comes to working with people around quitting, we will often recommend that somebody would use something like a nicotine replacement. It, it can make That's people very problem. irrational. I, I've heard of people walking three or four miles in the middle of the night to find a, a garage open to buy a packet of cigarettes or a, you talked uh, there about uh, having a, a plan for quitting and I've heard yeah. of people saying uh, I'm, I'm giving up uh, 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 and they say it as they're putting out a cigarette and they might only smoke a cigarette every couple of hours uh, but 20 minutes later they have to have a cigarette because they're going mad for some reason. Oh no absolutely Michael I think I think you've characterised it really well I mean this is a, at the heart of um, somebody who is smoking long term is a nicotine addiction and part of the plan to break through that and enable somebody to successfully become smoke-free is dealing with that nicotine addiction. And our services deal with that in two ways. Uh, Firstly, they deal with that from a psychology perspective. So, you know, they coach somebody through the um, quit attempt. And that can include lots of practical things, like, for example, if your daily routine brings you by a particular shop where you buy cigarettes maybe in the morning along with chewing gum and a paper, Mm. then they might give you a very practical piece of advice like, you know what, maybe take a different route to work in the morning or a different route to school when you're dropping the kids off. Um, so so they, they, they deal with the psychology and they deal with that in a very practical way in terms of coaching people through and offering them tips. And what about the bad humour? Because a lot of people give up cigarettes and they don't uh, just end up in a bad humour. They can be angry and very annoyed with other people and so on. Uh, and they think, well, look, look I better uh, have a cigarette or I'll fall out with everybody. Yeah, well, look, I mean, a a few points on that, Michael. Absolutely, uh, when somebody is um, going through nicotine withdrawal, that's a very difficult situation to be in. And one of the best things that people can do to get through nicotine withdrawal is uh, use a uh, stop-smoking medicine like nicotine replacement therapy as part of their quit attempt. But I think it's very important and very interesting to note that um, in terms of uh, mood and how people feel, um, evidence would say that if somebody is successful in making a quit attempt, that can have the same effect in terms of improving their mood as taking an antidepressant. Um, actually, one of the uh, harms that's associated with smoking that's often overlooked are the mental health harms that are associated with smoking. Mm. We know that smoking um, leads to anxiety, it can lead to mood disorder. People often think that, um, oh, if I smoke, that's going to help alleviate mm. Mm. Actually, it's not alleviating stress. What smoking is doing is medicating nicotine withdrawal uh, and the nicotine withdrawal that's leading to anxiety. And if you stay with it, if you stop smoking and if you stay with it, uh, will all of those withdrawal symptoms go away in time? Oh, absolutely. You know, so in fact, what's what's really interesting is when we uh, work with people who make quit attempts, people who have been smoking, they're often very surprised at how quickly they experience some of the benefits of of quitting. So actually within within a few uh, minutes and within a few hours, people will notice that their heart rate has settled. They'll actually have um, higher levels of blood, lower levels of carbon monoxide in the bloodstream. Within days, people will notice that their sense of taste and smell um, returns and that shows that the airways are starting to recover. And then within weeks, people will find that their breathing is easy, easier. They'll mm. find 
their tolerance of exercise is better and their mood has improved. And, and generally by the end of the first year of making a quit attempt successfully, people will find that the risks of chronic disease and premature mortality associated with smoking, they've actually started to reverse those. So and they'll have more money in the bank and be able to save oh, more money to buy oh, a house and, li- and live longer. <laughs> smoking 20 a day, they're yeah, going yeah. to be, that's going to be costing them 100 euros a week. Yeah, if you're yeah, talking yeah. about a couple, for example, a mm. young couple, maybe both of them are smoking 20 a day, that's 10,000 euros a year. Okay. You know, yep. Michael, so, I mean, if that, yep. you know, there's definitely lots of motivation on a health front in terms of making okay. a quick attempt, but even practically just the cost of the habit is very significant. So the most important thing that people could do if they're thinking of making a quick attempt is reach out to the HSE for support, quit.ie, one eight hundred two zero one two zero three. We're there to help. Our help is um, effective, and it's going to increase the chances that somebody makes a successful quick attempt by two to fourfold. Dr. Peter Kavanagh, Public Health Medicine Specialist with the HSE. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 